This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by BlendJet. I've had my BlendJet blender for about a month now, and I love it. Instead of grabbing a bag of chips or a cookie or a brownie or whatever's left over on the counter, I really quickly, really easily blend up a little smoothie in the afternoon, gives me that little afternoon perk that I need, filling me up to get me through the end of the day. The BlendJet 2 is a portable blender, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It is small enough to fit in a cup holder, but it's powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease, and it is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. The BlendJet 2 lasts for more than 15 blends and recharges quickly via USB-C. And best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. You just put in some water, a drop of soap, and you are good to go. So what are you waiting for? Head over to BlendJet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use my promo code, that's PolicyViz12, PolicyViz12, to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. So blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 portable blender. Go to BlendJet.com and use the code POLICYVIZ12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Welcome back to the Policy Viz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I hope you're well. Spring is well underway here in Virginia. The pollen is everywhere. We tend to call it the great pollening here. So eyes are itchy, noses are running, but we soldier on. I'm excited for this week's episode of the show. Before we get into that, I want to let you know that my next book, Data Visualization in Excel, is about to hit bookshelves. This is a step-by-step book to help you create better and more effective graphs in the Microsoft Excel tool. I'm a big believer that any data visualization tool can be used for different purposes. It's not one tool to rule them all. There's the sort of Lord of the Rings data visualization tool out there. So I use Excel for a lot of my work. I don't use it for all of my work because it's not going to work for certain types of visualizations or certain products or certain use cases. But if you want to expand how you use Excel, you want to create better, different types of graphs, I hope this book will be the book for you. So I've put a link to both the CRC Press page, which is the publisher of this book, and to the Amazon US site. And if you'd like to go and pre-order it, of course, as you probably know, pre-orders really help get the word out to more and more people so that they can use the book in their own work. So I hope you will check it out. That's data visualization in Excel, hitting bookshelves any day now. Having said that, on this week's episode of the show, I chat with Jeremy Nay from AmericanInequality.io to talk about a recent map he created on disparities in life expectancy across the United States. And it was a map that got picked up in lots of different places, including the New York Times, including the Washington Post. And so Jeremy came on the show to talk about why he thought the map did as well as it did, his ongoing work and the different tools that he uses in his own process to analyze, collect, and visualize his data. So I hope you'll enjoy this week's conversation with Jeremy Nay here on the Policy Viz podcast. 
Hey, Jeremy. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Hey, John. I am doing very well. How about you? I'm doing great. Um, thanks for uh, getting in touch. I'm excited to talk about this work you've been doing and uh, all the places you've had to follow up. It sounds like you've been busy with this particular map that we'll focus on. But Yes, very busy. It's been <laughs> a lot of interest in life expectancy and yeah. internet. Yes, yeah, short. it's really interesting. Uh, and we'll get to it, but really interesting how like, you know, you make that like one thing that kind of just like takes off all of a sudden. So I thought we would start, maybe you could just uh, tell folks a little bit about yourself and what you've been doing, and then we can segue into the, uh, the current work that you're up to. Yeah, absolutely. So I am the author of, uh, American Inequality, which is a, a newsletter and, and data portal that uses data visualization to highlight U.S. inequality topics that are often left in the dark. Things like you know, life expectancy, internet access, food deserts, uh, debt, things like that. Um, and this work really emerged from you know uh, a lot of research that I was doing when I was at the Federal Reserve in New York, mainly looking at U.S. income inequality, and I think through that. You know, recognize that inequality was about way more than just income. You know, it's tied up mm -hmm. in education and healthcare and taxes and race and gender and location. Went off to uh, do more research at MIT and Harvard, um, where I kind of started building out more of this. You know, these data visualizations was sitting on them and, and decided to turn it into this publication, which is sort of you know what we've now been digging into. And then I also work uh, at Google doing tech policy work. Uh, there as well. Cool. So let's talk about the map to start. The most recent map. I don't want to call it the map because you've done a lot of a lot of different things. Um, but I think our conversation will branch back into some of the things you just mentioned because I'm curious about your experience both at the Fed and then at school and how data viz sort of played a part in all all the different roles. But maybe we could start on your life expectancy map. So this is a Corepleth map county level of the U.S. looking at disparities in life expectancy. And that's all I'm going to say about it. And I'm going to let you explain it for folks uh, who maybe haven't seen it. And of course, I'll put it on the on the notes page so they can take a look in, in more detail. But I'll, I'll let you take a spin. Sure thing. Yeah. So the biggest thing that, that we kind of found in this map, and I think why it caught you know, so many folks' attention is, you know, what the data shows is that the U.S. is actually experiencing the greatest divide in life expectancy across regions in the last 40 years. So, you know, what you can see from some of these, you know, red spots or, or blue spots is that if you are born in, you know, certain counties in Mississippi or Florida, you may die at 67 on average. But if you're born in, in certain parts of, you know, Colorado or California, you may live to 87 on average. So, you know, mm -hmm. a 20 year gap in life expectancy, you know, from no fault of your own, you may, you know, live there or, or, you know, be subject to a lot of these, you know, challenges of that region. And so I think that that was, you know, what was really quite striking to folks in this is that, you know, when we talk about averages or the average experience of America, we're actually not, you know, digging into those communities, we actually see much bigger um, divides and not everyone is really experiencing those those same outcomes and that mm -hmm. can be driven by a whole host of, of factors within those communities. I'm curious because there's been a lot of discussion about changing life expectancy, obviously across nationally, but also within the United States. We've seen real dramatic shifts in 
uh, mortality, particularly among middle-aged white males, which sort of reversed the decades-long trend. And I'm curious why you think this particular map struck such a chord. Yeah, so I think there were three things that were kind of happening all at once to create this perfect storm of, of yeah. why this really took off. So I think first and, and foremost was, you know, John Byrne Murdoch at the, at the Financial Times published this, this piece talking about U.S. versus U.K. life expectancy, basically showing that Americans die far younger um, than uh, British people do. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, a lot of the data visualizations that, that John presented were quite, quite striking to folks. And in particular, that the average American actually has the same life expectancy as the worst region in the UK in this area, you know, Blackpool. And so I think that, you know, really drew this interest in life expectancy kind of into the fold. Mm -hmm. I think as people started to dig into it, they're like, hey, the average of the US might not be quite right, because there's such different experiences that we can have in, you know, Alabama versus Washington State, for example. So I think that was number Mm -hmm. one. I think number two was was new data just came out basically around Mm -hmm. the same time. And so the new data there was that the U.S. actually hit the largest decline in life expectancy in the last hundred years. Much of that was, you know, COVID driven, but some of it, you know, was these other factors as as you had mentioned. But basically not since, you know, uh, 1921 to 1923 had we seen this same, you know, terrible decline. And on top of that, new data showed also that the U.S. is far, far, far worse than any other country, um, you know, when it comes to to some of these declines. Um, And then third and and finally on on kind of this perfect storm was that, you know, there's so much that we talk about in, in the U.S. about these different, you know, divides that we have, whether it's, you know, political divides or you know, healthcare divides or, you know, race-based divides. And so I think there was something about life expectancy that really allowed everybody to like come together and sort of have this appreciation for this common challenge. You know, we all want to spend many years, you know, with our loved ones. We want to celebrate birthdays with each other, you know, and and even as the map was was blowing up, this one woman reached out to me, this woman, Amy in, in Kentucky, you know, who talked about how her, you know, father died at, at 46 from cancer um, and how the only, you know, doctor that he ever saw was the doctor that he saw in prison. Now she was mm-hmm. so worried, you know, that she herself wouldn't live to 40. And so I think it's these types of, of challenges, you know, that everyone is so worried about, about like their, their longevity. And Kentucky too mm-hmm. has, you know, the fifth, I think it's the fifth worst life expectancy of any state in the US too. And so I think it's, you know, this new work that, that is being done comparing the U.S. across countries. It was this new data and it was this new, you know, like or this continued sense of feeling that a hey, life is really precious. And I'm, and I'm mm. so concerned about it that really allowed, I think, this this data is in particular of the many that we have to really take off. Yeah, I think personally, I would add a fourth to that and that the structure of the map itself is really interesting, because if you said to someone, create Someone in the data of this community said, create a map for me. Here's the data. Create a map that shows life expectancy. The range is from, you know, about 66 to 90. I think most people, when they create that map, they'd create it using a sequential color palette. It would go from like light blue to dark blue. But the way you created it was you did it as a diverging palette where the center point is the national average. And so you've got this 
above average in shades of blue and below average in shades of red. And so I think in a lot of ways that draws this pretty stark difference that is really visual and sort of, you know, instinctual uh, on the map rather than just going from like a light color to a dark color. Yeah, I think the two differences in, in colors, the blue versus red is is really striking, not only for drawing your attention to those areas in, in red and kind of, you know, that signaling of, you know, when we do see see red, the, we, we tend to think of some sort of, you know, calamity going on in, in mm -hmm. some ways. Um, but what we have been working on quite a bit more at American Inequality is this concept of, of opportunity mapping is how can these areas in red that are particularly struggling with a challenge, like learn from those areas in blue as well. And so I think when you have those divergent palettes, it's easier for you to see like, hey, I'm actually in one of these struggling regions. How can I better identify someone else who is doing better with this challenge? Mm -hmm. and so it's finding those comparable regions to say, hey, I'm I may be challenged with this, you know, particular inequality. Can I can I find some other area that can, you know, help me um, work through it? Yeah, you, you mentioned the the politics of the kind of our divided country, too. I wonder, do you think like the red, blue, do you think it sort of harkens to that Democrat, Republican color palette? Like, do you think people try to like mentally make that link? I think people definitely make that link. And in particular, you know, the day or so after, you know, the, the map um, really blew up, Paul Krugman wrote a uh, op-ed in, in the New York Times talking about exactly that, mm. um, where he talked about, you know, this actually relationship between um, Democratic and Republican um, states, and in particular counties that, you know, swung uh, one way or another um, in 2016 um, and in 2020 as well, and their relationship as well with life expectancy. And so I think that does, I think you're right that that, you know, color choice in some ways does harken to that. And then Paul Krugman basically went further to say, hey, in fact, we actually do see a bit of this. Right. Right. So you grab new data and the map is made in data wrapper. And so I'm curious about your toolkit. I mean, you've talked about working at Google, working at the Fed of New York, uh, MIT, Harvard. And so I'm curious about your toolkit, both from the data extraction and cleaning process all the way through through the end through the through the visualization so for you what does that look like and has your toolkit sort of changed over time the toolkit has definitely changed over time and i will say data wrapper is an absolutely fantastic tool i cannot you know recommend it you know highly enough i think particularly for folks who are starting out earlier in their you know data viz journeys it's such an easy tool to create those you know interactive um, tools to help start building narratives to help give you prompts as well about what works. I think it's it's really quite helpful there and has also been nice, you know, for helping to embed your work in, in other tools like a, a Substack or, or things like that, where we, mm -hmm. you know, have, have our newsletter. Um, but our process is really, you know, we often will either start, you know, with an idea like, hey, we really want to write about, you know, childcare and inequality or something, or we'll start off, you know, someone will send us an interesting data set. And so some of the other tools that we'll use, depending on you know how big the data set is, is a lot of Python and, and R as well, you know, to access those from you know large government agencies like you know the CDC or you know the EPA or the FBI to try and pull that in and, and clean that data. But we also always really try and focus on these, these county level maps in particular mm. because 
inequality happens in communities, right? And so having you know state level or national level data is helpful, but it actually can obfuscate what's really happening on the ground, particularly if you look at some of these you know bigger states like you know California or Texas or Florida, where what's happening in the north or the south can really be you know quite uh, different. And so whenever we're going to those big government agencies, we try and find that that county level, um, you know, insights. And then depending as well on, on what we're trying to build out, you know, Tableau has also been a really fantastic tool for creating some of those dashboards to say, you know, hey, I am a, a state or local, you know, politician or policymaker. I really want to understand what is this, you know, factor in my community that's most strongly correlated with life expectancy, for example. And so you can create mm -hmm. all these interesting toggles that, that we built a, a tool around that as well to say, you know, it might turn out that it's, you know, cancer is is one of your, you know, biggest factors or gun violence or something like that. Right. that Tableau is quite helpful for, for understanding some of that. Right. But, but, and to your point about the county level, there's another graph in the original, I guess the original medium posts that maybe hasn't got as much play, but is an interesting visualization that really, I think, takes advantage of the fact that you have a lot of data. I mean, you have county level data for, I don't know what it is, like, you know, uh, maybe about like 10 different years since 1980. So could you talk about that? Like, what was the impetus of, and I'll let you describe it, like, what was the impetus behind that second graph and the process of creating that one? Yeah. So I'm very glad you you brought that up. So there's a handful of other you know visualizations that, that we did in there. One is you know this one that basically shows how life expectancy has changed over time because I think it's also important to acknowledge that you know the U.S. has made a lot of you know really great strides in improving life expectancy you know over you know the last uh, decade and, and even decades before that you know even going back as far as you know 1940 when when we have some of this data from, um, but when we look, you know, on the county level, we actually see some regions that really aren't making as much strides as one would expect when we talk about mm -hmm. like the overall American experience, you know, and so I think that's why it's, you know, helpful to look at that. And then one of the other, you know, kind of critical pieces that, that we found in this work is the high correlation between life expectancy and income in America. Mm -hmm. And that this is really one of those, you know, driving forces too. And I think that county level data really shows that, that if you happen to be born in, you know, one of these, you know, counties like, you know, Loudoun County in, in Virginia that has the highest, you know, median household income, you are far more likely, you know, to live much longer than, you know, being born in, you know, Oglala, Lakota County in, in South Dakota. Um, you know, where a huge portion of folks there uh, live uh, in poverty, you know, median household income closer to, to 35,000 or so. And so right. really this relationship that we see between wealth and life expectancy is, is quite strong. And, you know, having all of these county level data points really allowed us to, to show that relationship. What is your approach to this generally of visualizing and talking about inequality? Because there are huge literatures, right? I mean, economists and sociologists and political scientists have made careers on talking about inequality and figuring out different ways to decompose inequality into different factors and controlling for, you know, age distribution and education distribution. 
so how do you think about that? Because the, the way that you are describing it and the way that you are presenting it is really, here's the data. It's sort of you've broken down to, I mean, I don't know if it's the smallest level of geography, maybe the smallest meaningful level of geography at the county level, but um, so, so how do you how do you sort of try to maybe think about that or thread the needle when it when it comes to these different aspects of of data and modeling? Yeah, I think you know it's at least two parts to it. One is is we really try and just let the data speak for itself, right? And and capturing it, you know, from these you know large government agencies and presenting it almost as is. You know, we do you know some you know data cleaning or sometimes we'll show these relationships, but you know, in my experience, you know, both from from the the Fed and you know, in, in you know some of the grad research as well, like a lot of this fancy econometric work can sometimes feel inaccessible to mm. you know a larger audience. And um, while it's like really important to make sure you're not falling into some of these like you know fallacies of of you know base rates and and things like that, you know, you do want to make sure you're controlling for certain things. Right. Presenting the data as is, I think, allows folks to really say like, okay, this is you know, I'm looking at it from the source and I can understand it and this hasn't been, you know, manipulated. And I think in a time where we're all like really you know, searching for, for truth and understanding what's out there, having just presenting the facts as is, I think really goes a long way and has been part of the reason this has really caught on with a lot mm -hmm. of folks. And then I think the second piece, you know, why we you know, also try and present the, the data in that way is it also helps us understand the stories behind the data, right? So one we visualize it and we see this county in red you know we'll say like hey what what's going on there why yeah. why is this region really struggling with this challenge you know instead of doing you know a lot of manipulation so for example you know when we wrote a piece on cancer and inequality we found this one county uh, elkhart county in indiana was you know dying of, of cancer at much higher rates than in the rest of the u.s couldn't really understand what was going on you know like pretty uh, racially diverse area, relatively high income levels, um, fairly high educated. But once we, you know, basically started doing this research, we found that Elkhart County is the the RV capital of the world. Mm. It's where basically airstreams are are produced, and and all these RVs. And so all the folks who are working and living around there are basically breathing in all of this mm. fiberglass all the time from these RVs that are being produced. And as a result, you know, folks there are dying of, of lung cancer at, you know, four right. or five times the rate of, of the U.S. And so I think that process also allows us to, to not like come with too many priors about yeah. the data, but just to see what it is and then start digging in and finding those stories of, of the communities or the individuals who are really struggling with that data. Because that's also a really important part, right? Like recognizing yeah. that you know, these challenges aren't just about the statistics, like there's very real people who struggle mm -hmm. with these very real challenges. So how do you go about doing that then? Do you start making phone calls? Do you talk to journalists? Like what, what is the next step in that? Because the storytelling piece, I think uh, we could we could have a whole other discussion about data viz and storytelling and whether, you know, how those words match up. But like you've mentioned stories and, and community a bunch in this in this discussion. And so what is that next step for you? So you identify this county in Indiana. Do you start making phone calls? Do you start talking to people? Like, what is that next step for you? Yeah, it's a handful of things. I mean, you know, part of it will be, you know, from other work that I've like, you know, done in the past, um, you know, either through, you know, startups that I have, have worked on or, you know, areas where I like know uh, teachers in the area or folks who are like working on, on startups in that, mm -hmm. you know, 
a particular area of inequality, we'll reach out to them to try and get, you know, stories either from them or from, you know, clients or, or something that they've worked with has been, you know, one area. Um, but then we also, you know, there's, as you had mentioned earlier, you know, there's so much written on so many of these inequalities as well. And so, you know, if we can reach, you know, out to some of the, you know, local newspapers in a region, you know, that have been really like covering, you know, flooding in an area. Nobody really seems to be like digging into these stories except for these local newspapers. You right. know, we'll talk to them and try and use some of their stories about, you know, the the gas station that ended up getting, you know, flooded in a hundred year flood that happened, you know, five times in the last 10 years, you know, that yeah. type of thing. Yeah. And my guess, so correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to guess here that throughout your education, being primarily a quantitative person, you probably haven't had a lot of qualitative methods training formally. Yeah, I think that's largely true. There was, I worked at, at IDEO actually, you know, for a bit oh. as well. And, and yeah. so that I think also helped give me, you know, kind of this deeper insight into like, you know, user design and, and user research as well. And I think mm -hmm. that's also part of the reason that, you know, at American Equality, we tend to really try and bridge those two gaps of not always being so quantitative in the work, but trying to drive some of the qualitative um, as well. And we see that also, you know, like kind of flipped in, in many scenarios too, where, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, for example, you know, policymakers knew qualitatively that they had this internet access issue in, in Oregon, for example, but they didn't know quantitatively, mm -hmm. you know, where to actually, um, you know, be making change. And so for folks who can help us like kind of balance that, like we have the data, they have the stories, mm -hmm. we're able to actually create these great mixes. And so in, in Oregon, we were able to work with those folks, you know, and distribute, you know, hundreds of, of Wi-Fi hotspots with, you know, with a, a local nonprofit across the state to, to really drive that that impact. Right. But it, it is, as you mentioned, you know, it takes takes both of those sides for sure. And I ask because I think I think a lot of people who are in the data viz field or you know maybe quantitative researchers, for those who don't just like poo-poo qualitative work, who actually want to do qualitative work. Um, it's just, it sounds interesting. It's just, I think it's interesting to me that your, your approach is to call journalists and call newspapers and, and find those stories. So if there was someone else on this call right now lurking behind me, which hopefully no one's lurking <laughs> behind me, but another quantitative person lurking behind me and wanted to do something similar, what would your one or two pieces of advice be to go find those deeper stories? Yeah, I have really found like, you know, Twitter is surprisingly fantastic at that, you know, for like, you know, putting these stories out there, Twitter and, and Medium too, mm -hmm. people really, um, you know, the maps resonate with them. And they'll, you know, write me back things saying like, hey, I'm from the only, you know, blue county, you know, my county doing better, you know, in my state. Like, I'm, I'm so happy that I'm going to be like not, you know, struggling with this inequality right. or, you know, someone else being like, oh, darn, I now realize that I'm going to be dying, you know, 10 years younger than like my peers, you know, right across the border or something like that. And it's also been quite helpful, you know, to like, you know, engage folks, you know, the article that we wrote on Internet access uh, someone in North Carolina reached out saying like, hey, this article really resonated with me because, you know, I only have like one telco in my region. They charge me exorbitant prices mm -hmm. and I get terrible internet service. And so, you know, helping, you know, putting the work out there, you know, trying to allow that that stuff to come in. 
but having that inbound, you know, only, you know, works after a certain point that yeah. outbound as well, you know, I think in particular, you know, there's those you know, local newspapers, but I think, you know, Vox and the Atlantic in particular do like tremendous storytelling work yeah. um, around a lot of these issues. Um, before I let you go, I want to get back to one more date of his thing. Um, and there's a kind of a two-part question here, uh, a technical question and then sort of a just general question. So the general question is the graphs in the Medium post, and again, I'll, I'll link to these for folks who, who want to dive in more, and, and they obviously should. The They are native data wrapper graphs, so they are interactive. Um, and then on the uh, Substack newsletter, they are static. And so there's kind of a two-part question. The first question is more conceptual is why interactivity? Uh, and is that sort of like, is that a priority for you when you go in to create these denser visualizations to, en to enable the interactivity? And then second, I don't exactly know how to ask this question, but it's kind of like on the technical challenge, like, do you wish you could put an interactive graph in the Substack, And do you see that as being, would that be valuable? Or is it just, it's too heavy for email and for a newsletter, and it's better to just push people back to the original where they can interact with it. So a variety of pieces in there, but it's really focusing on this, the interactivity versus the static. Yeah, the interactivity is really important, I think, for this work, for helping people understand, right, the challenges in their communities. People love to say, like, hey, I'm from Kings County. I really want to understand, you know, what is going on in this region in Brooklyn. Um, because people, the map is such an easy way that's can be really accessible for folks mm -hmm. because everybody knows where they live or where they grew up and it allows you to actually like you know feel like there's this work is really touching you in a way that a you know bar chart or a, a dot mm -hmm. plot uh doesn't and for us where we you know talk across such a huge range of topics as well the map is that uniting force that, mm -hmm. that connects uh, a lot of that um, you know, research and, and writing. Um, so the interactivity is really important, I think, for like helping folks understand, you know, what's actually happening in their communities. Two, on the on the Substack part, do I wish yeah. that they had, you know, the ability to do this? For sure. I think, you know, mm -hmm. email, it's this, in, we're in this interesting time where I think folks are like figuring out these, you know, best ways to be communicating with each yeah. other, and particularly in the, you know, policy viz and data viz world and following a lot of you know, writers and, and journalists now on, on Substack too. I see mm -hmm. lots of folks experimenting with different ways to communicate this, like whether it's through video embeds or GIFs or static images. But in every, you know, Substack post that we do, you know, we put this button below every chart that says, you know, explore the data here, mm -hmm. in part because it helps achieve that goal of allowing people to interact with it. But two, because we are also... Um, you know, really big proponents of open source data in a mm -hmm. lot of this work, right? So not only do we allow you to access it there, but on our, our website, you know, americaninequality.io, we allow you to basically download everything, you know, as a, a already cleaned, you know, CSV Excel file. Um, so you can access it yourself because navigating a lot of these, you know, government portals, for example, can be quite yeah. challenging <laughs> and we don't want that to be a barrier for folks for unpacking inequality or understanding what's happening in their community and so you know that way of trying to lead folks to those areas i think also helps with that that open source ethos yeah absolutely and it is worth noting that on 
your data wrapper charts. Uh, folks can go get the data directly in the data wrapper chart, which should be known for those who don't know, like you can turn that, like a producer can turn that off in data wrapper. Like you have the ability to turn that off, but you have fortunately left that available. So you go look at this really cool bubble chart of income and life expectancy. You want to download the data, explore it on your own. You, you're able to do so, which is great. Um, Jeremy, so our last question is where can folks find you? Where can they sign up for your uh, materials and um, and get more of the inequality content? Yeah, so as you know, we chatted about the newsletter. Um, you can sign up for it there at uh, AmericanInequality.substack.com. Uh, uh, we send it about you know about every every two weeks or so. Our next one coming up will be on on childcare and inequality, which we're quite excited about. You know, the Department of Labor for the first time ever just released county level data, so we're excited to be you know putting work forward uh, on that. Uh, AmericanInequality.io, as I mentioned, is uh, the where we host kind of all of the, the maps and the, the open source uh, data as well. Um, and then if folks are also interested in, you know, following along on, on Twitter with a lot of this work uh, on that, uh, Jeremy Binet on, on Twitter too. Perfect. Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Great work. Love it. Uh, and I hope folks will sign up. So thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, John. And thanks to everyone for tuning into this week's episode of the show. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you will head over to Substack and sign up for Jeremy's newsletter. I also hope you will check out the new book page for my new book, Data Visualization in Excel on policyviz.com. And also you can go pre-order the book at Amazon, CRC Press, or your favorite book seller. The book comes out May 26th is when it will start shipping. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the show. Be sure to check back for our next episode coming up in a couple weeks, where we will once again help you think about ways to improve the way you create and communicate your data. So until next time, this has been the Policy of This Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. A number of people help bring you the Policy of This Podcast. Music is provided by the NRIs. Audio editing is provided by Ken Skaggs. Design and promotion is created with assistance from Sharon Satsuki Ramirez. And each episode is transcribed by Jenny Transcription Services. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Policy Viz Podcast is ad-free and supported by listeners. If you'd like to help support the show financially, please visit our PayPal page or our Patreon page at patreon.com slash policyviz.